If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to 1 Kings chapter 17? And if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, I think it'll be page 205. 1 Kings chapter 17, and, and I will ask you to just keep that open in front of you or keep your screen on or, or available so that as we walk through several verses here in this chapter, you'll be able to follow along. As you're turning there, I'd like, if I could ask you uh, for a favor, I'd like for you to think of some time, sometime that was uh, something that you experienced that was particularly difficult for you. But looking back, you you realize it was that moment, and perhaps it was not only difficult, it was life-changing. I'd like for you to think about it. And and perhaps it was as difficult as it was, as consequential as it was, it ended up really shaping you and growing you for the better. So that may be a loss that you experienced, and that loss made you realize who or what is the most important thing. Or, Or it may be uh, some medical issue that just kind of was sprung upon you or maybe had, you had a, a long-term wrestling with it. But it, it's made you realize how fragile life can be even when you feel like you're at the uh, top, of, top of your health. Or maybe it's, it's some failure that you experienced that made you learn to be patient and learn to persevere. Or maybe it's a gift of grace, something that you know you, you never earned, you didn't deserve. But there was that time that you think back that someone showed that kindness to you and you've just never been the same. Or it might be some sort of awakening that you had where and it seemed like for the first time in a long time you really saw yourself in the mirror. You saw, saw maybe a flaw or a weakness or a, a stubborn pattern of behavior. And when you saw it, you, you began to change. And it hasn't been easy, and it wasn't easy changing, but God's done some work. Times like those really shape our lives. I mean, in some ways, we're, we're never the same. In the Bible, God, God tells a story, and it's the authoritative account of many individuals of what was really going on in their lives. And he tells this story of different characters, different individuals that, that we come across. And they experience some very difficult things. And one thing we recognize is they don't experience the difficult things because God is somehow out of control. But often they will go through difficult times directly because he is in control and he's working out his good plan in their lives. And so we've been studying one of those characters. Uh, We began last week studying the character of Elijah. And Elijah is one of those. Elijah comes crashing onto the scene as we read 1 Kings 17. He kind of comes from nowhere. And he dealt with some serious adversity. It seems like all the stories of Elijah's life are, are tough stories. And yet God used him to point people back to himself. So Elijah is an important person. He's a central person in the Bible. But, but the whole Bible is not about Elijah. It's about God. And so this morning, I want us to, yes, I want us to look kind of through the lens of Elijah. But I want to ultimately look at what God is doing. So if you have 1 Kings 17, can we look at verse 1? We looked at this verse briefly last week, but we'll we'll dig further in this week. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And with this encounter that Elijah has with Ahab, and really not just Ahab, but the whole nation of Israel, I want us to see through that encounter that God corrects our thinking. God knows 
how to correct our thinking. Why do I say that? Because in that time period, the whole nation seemed to be moving and drifting away from worship of the true God into worship of another God. And that, the name of that God was the God Baal. And Baal was the supposed like storm God. He was a local God, not an international God, but he was, he's a local God. And he like provided the rain and provided the, any sort of precipitation or any, any sort of storms or, or wind, all that was in supposedly under his control. So you can imagine it's not a mostly urban environment. It's mostly rural and agrarian. How important it was that you had rain. And so the nation seemed to be drifting to trust in him, but what Elijah is going to do is say, Baal is a worthless, weak, powerless God who cannot save, just like Champ was talking about earlier, cannot deliver. Through this encounter that Elijah has with Ahab, he begins to kind of point out Israel's trust, their, their flawed trust in this God. I, I do have to wonder, like, so it's one, one thing for Elijah the prophet and Ahab the king to have their discussion, but what, what about the rank and file, just the people, ordinary citizens of Israel? So we just picked out a random guy, Benjamin the Israelite, who lived at that time. I wonder what was going through his mind through all this. So he would be likely a farmer. That, that was what most everybody would be. And I wonder if you ask this particular Israelite during this time period, you know, apart from, again, Ahab and Elijah, if you asked him what he thought about religion, I, I, I wonder if this person might classify himself in that time period as, ah, I'm spiritual but not really religious. I kind of class my, classify myself as none. I, I really, I used to have something, but I just, I, I kind of go with the flow. But he doesn't take necessarily religious, religion that seriously, perhaps, but he does take one thing seriously, and that is rain. Because if the rain doesn't come, his crops don't grow. And if he can't have crops growing, he doesn't have a means of supporting his family. So what makes the world go around for him is the rain that gives the crops. So yeah, I mean, Baal may be just make-believe to him. But he's been having some good crops and life is good, the economy's good. But he hears about something that goes down in the capital city. A prophet showed up, told the king it wasn't going to rain, and everybody thought it was a total joke for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for a couple months, for a year, like, oh my goodness, what has happened? Well, now we know like what, what this person really believes. He may not have much time for religious and superstitious stuff. He didn't care much about the God stuff until it touched, until it touched the rain. And now you have his attention. See, what makes the world go around for the people in Israel at the time was the rain and don't mess with that. God is going to correct their thinking about what really, what really rules what really is worth trusting. So there's this true God and there's the false God. And, and, and I'll have to say this, discerning, discerning gods, little G-O-D-S, discerning what's the God in my life right now. I'm not talking about the thing that you'd check off, like what religion are you? And you say, ah, oh, Christianity. Well, like probably many in the room would do. Now, I, I'm kind of taking a step back. What is really at the center of your being? What makes your world go around? That is... It's sometimes difficult to discern. I, I might offer a few questions here. 
So what really is it that you must have to be content? And that might just be your God. What, what is it that would devastate you if you lost this? You would say, it not only would hurt, I'm not sure life would be worth living. That, that could very well be your God. What matters so much to you that you would sacrifice some things you like and some things you want and things that seem to be important to you, you would give up those if you could have this. See, often it's even good things. It's good things that have become ultimate things, even gifts from God that have become our idols, the things that we worship, and God comes in and corrects our thinking. You see, when we have other gods before God, often it doesn't feel like God just gets totally dismissed. It just means that he seems less important to us than he used to. When I have another God before God, you're not going to come into my house and see this statue and see me on my face before it. That's not the way it's going to work in my life. And it's probably not the way it's going to work in your life. When you have other gods before the one true God, you just begin to notice things about your heart. I think it is really, really wise for us regularly to stop and take inventory Okay, what does it take to make me content? What do I have to have? Am I buying into the, the cultural idol? What all the culture, culture tells us that to really be content, you got to have stuff and you got to have a lot of it. And if you don't have enough money to pay for that stuff, you've got to just use whatever means you have. Use it. Get the stuff because only when you have stuff and only when you look like the beautiful people on the commercials and only when you have this and that and this and that will you really will you really be content if you just had a little bit more then then you would be content and then you realize oh my goodness pleasure is driving the idol of pleasure is really calling the shots in my life or perhaps it's that relationship that you would compromise a lot of things that right now you would tell me you believe in you would compromise that You would sacrifice lots of those things because this relationship, just to be loved by this person, just for that person to give you some attention, just to feel that, feel that high when when you notice someone has noticed you, you would give all kinds of things for that and you will not, you cannot be happy without that. You're not sure it's worth getting up tomorrow because you don't have that. Could it be some sort of power or control that you have? God has a way of, like, threatening our idols. So we think we're in control. And then God has a way of showing, you're, you're really not. And we resist that, and we get so frustrated by that. Sometimes even holidays point that out. You've got a bunch of people in the house, and you see how little in control you are. Maybe it's the approval if someone says, like, you're all right. Or, or maybe it's status. Like you, you reach this and you've worked hard. Like you've put in a lot of time for it and you want to, want to get to this certain place where everybody kind of notice, notices that person that you are, you're an important person and maybe that just feeds, you've got to have that. That's driving you. Or maybe it's your image. The image that you work so hard to project. The image that like, don't touch that. I don't want anybody to see me as less than this. Or maybe it's family. Maybe one of the 
indicators was you, you sat down at a, a table and you really were far from content. And you were sad, not just like mildly sad, but extremely irritated deep down to your core because your family just isn't quite what it, you, you, know, you know it should be and you want it to be and you've worked for it to be and it's not happening. And see, it gets complicated, but I'm pretty convinced that there are some things that really, really matter to us. I'm pretty, pretty certain for all of us there are things that begin to eclipse God. That really our world goes around these things and we just kind of move God out. God has a way of correcting our thinking. He is totally willing to threaten our idols of comfort and approval and security and pleasure and power and family, career and status. God corrects our thinking. And here comes Elijah with a different message. And and he's like, let's all turn our attention back to God. Remember the God who speaks. Not this idol that's worthless. It's interesting. So Elijah says there's not going to be any rain. What, What he's not doing is he's not like trying to cast a voodoo spell on them or something or some hex on the the whole nation because he's a little bit irritated. What actually, when you do some deeper study into this, you realize what Elijah is telling the people is exactly what God had promised them. So Elijah is very in tune with God's word. And so if you go even back to Deuteronomy, God had made this promise in Deuteronomy chapter 28. He says, if you will not obey, this is God making the promise, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you, today. Then the curses are going to come upon you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city and in the field. Verse 23, the heavens over your head. So I am well, I'm I'm certain Elijah was familiar with this verse. So the the heavens over your head will be bronze and the earth shall be iron and the, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder from heaven. Only dust will come down on you until you are destroyed. So God is not weak and worthless and powerless. Baal might be, but God is not. Correct your thinking. And even the wording that Elijah says in, in 1 Kings 17, he says, as the Lord God lives before whom I stand. Well, why was he standing before the Lord? We find out in other places is Elijah was a man of prayer. He was human, but he prayed. I love this insight that James gives to us. In James chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Elijah was as human as we are, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed. Well, again, why was he praying? He's praying fervently that it might not rain, and then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. But notice in verse 19, exactly why is he praying? I think there's, there's something about the context. So my brothers, if, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the whole nation had wandered away from the Lord and Elijah is praying, praying for them to come back to God. Praying that the desperate times that the rain, the lack of rain gives will help them come back to him. Things won't be well until you're ready to pay attention to God. Let's keep reading in in 1 Kings 17. In verse 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Depart from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So God's going to just move Elijah out of the picture. And so the people of Israel will have no word from the Lord until Elijah comes back into the equation. Look at verse 4. 
God told him to move, and then he said, you'll drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Five's an important, important verse. Like, man, this would be a great verse for my life, for your life. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is the east, east of the Jordan. And the ra- ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook and after a while the brook dried up. Notice what God does. So as Elijah, Elijah is now not in the, in the presence of Ahab. Now Elijah is alone. He's secluded. And when Elijah is alone, we learn something. And that is that God stretches our faith. God has a way of stretching our faith. This is the way God so often does it. God gives us a command. But the way God does it is he never gives a command without giving a promise. So God gives the command, tells Elijah, remove yourself. But then he gives a a promise, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. So here's what we do as the people of God. Here's what you do as a Christian. You obey the command and you believe the promise. If, oh, it were that simple. Obey what God says to do and trust what God has said he would do. God stretches our faith. I mean, so Elijah is as human as we are, so I just wonder what the first morning looked like. Did he have any sort of doubt, like, I may go hungry today. I'm in the middle of nowhere. I wonder after a week of getting ravens and the brook doesn't dry up, I wonder after a week, does he, on day number eight, does he go, ah, I hope it keeps coming. What about a year? I mean, would you? I, I think I would. I think I'd be wondering. I'd be grateful. But like, is this stream literally going to dry up? Is this, is this going to go away? Daily, he will have to depend on the Lord. God's working on a nation, a whole nation. God's working on a a wicked king, but in the midst of that, he's dealing with one individual named Elijah and he's pulled him out in seclusion. And Elijah has to depend on the Lord. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed what God often does? God will extend us beyond where we find comfort. And it'll push us just beyond that. It'll seem just beyond our ability to perform or deliver. And just about when we think we've got it figured out, we get stretched a little bit further. God stretches our faith. God works on us. God works even on our will, on our desires. Because frankly, often when God tells us to do something on our own, we we would not want to do it. At least we wouldn't want to do it the way God said to do it. We kind of would make up rationale and and humanly it would make all the sense in the world why we should not obey God. But God's spoken and, and, and we don't want to obey at first, but then we notice progress, God growing our faith, God stretching us as we find ourselves more willing to obey, more willing to take God at his word. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God who works in you both to will, to give you that desire and to work for his good pleasure. God works in our endurance. We feel like we're not going to be able to make it another day. I kind of go to bed thinking, if I have to face that tomorrow, I, I really don't know how, how I can do that. And you remember feeling that about five years ago. And slowly but surely, the Lord has given new mercies every morning. 
where you know God has been faithful. He gives grace to each day. He, he perseveres. And we persevere in our weariness and in our difficulty. And we grow. God stretches our faith. We begin to recognize what we might not have recognized years ago. And that is that God really is all wise. He knows what is best. So I play these silly little mindless games on, on my iPhone. And some of those games, if you see like the game's going bad and you're going to lose points, well, you can just restart the game. You know, made a mistake. Let's just start it over. Start this round over. Yeah, God never has to do that. Whoops, I messed up. Let me try that again. God never makes a mistake. And we begin to process that and we realize, okay, I can finally know that God is all wise. And not only is God all wise, but God is also, it stretches our faith to believe sometimes that he's good. Because we, we, we see what we've been dealt with, some, some tough things that we've been dealt with. And, and maybe it's not hard for you to believe that there's a God in control of it all, but it is really hard for you to believe that he actually might be good toward you. Maybe you walk through those deep valleys and you say, it's really tough to see God's goodness. But then light comes through and you see exactly what Jesus said, that if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more will your heavenly father give even the Holy Spirit to those who ask for? You begin to see the goodness of God. You begin to, you, you begin to know in your soul, Romans eight twenty eight really does make sense. That God does work all things together for good those who love him. You begin to know that he doesn't keep back things that are good for his children. God is growing. God is growing us. God's not like this dispassionate chess player. He's just playing with all the robots. God is deeply invested in you. and cares about you. And woke up this morning knowing full well your needs and knowing mine. I think we can even be encouraged in this. I mean, I read about Elijah and him slugging it out for months and months and months by a river all by himself. My guess is, I don't know how many people are in the room, but my guess is very few of us will be called to go to the Middle East and live by ourselves for three years by some dried out creek bed. So likely what will happen for all of us is that we, we have a church family around us and we gather around and some days we, we may not feel like singing so much, thank you God for saving me. Or we may not feel like we have 10,000 reasons. We may be looking for one reason to bless the Lord, but then we come into the community that God has provided for us. And we don't have to carry our burdens alone, but we get to share them. And, and I think we, we have it even so much different than Elijah had because we have each other that kind of bolster our faith and give us strength through those difficult days. God is kind, God is working on us. I don't know all that much about science and I don't know all that much about working out, exercising, but I do know this. I do know that when people want to grow stronger, often through some sort of exercise, whether it's lifting weights or running or swimming or, or riding their bike, what they do is they will, they will break down muscles so that those muscles then restore themselves, rebuild, and they grow stronger. And often the way when you exercise, you, you go at it more intense than you did the last time. You go at it harder. And, and in, in going after an intense workout, 
Yes, things break down. Your muscles break down. But then they rebuild and they re- restore. I wonder, if it's, I wonder if it's like that for us spiritually where at times we do feel very broken down because of how hard life has just pushed and pushed and pushed. And what we don't always see is, yeah, but as, as those spiritual muscles have, feel like they've been broken down, they're, they're getting rebuilt. You're becoming stronger. Often when you exercise, it's, it's either intensity of the exercise or the duration. You, you, you last longer. You try to push yourself for a, a longer period of time. And again, the muscles are, are strained and the muscles begin to break down, but, but then they rebuild. And for some of us, when we go through a difficult time, it's not so much how hard it is, it's how long it lasts. And the duration becomes difficult and we, we're, we're dealing with a chronic illness or we're dealing with caregiving that seems to last for a long time or a family situation that hasn't just been weeks or months, it's been years, maybe even decades. And it seems like the period of time has just really worn us out. What God does for us as we endure, he grows us. He makes us stronger. It's interesting. So in this story, God takes Elijah from one season of testing, and I think God will do this to you and me as well, from one season of testing, and he moves him. It's like Elijah graduates from that, the brook dries up, and God moves him to another test. Look at, look at, look at where God calls Elijah. Look at verse 7. It says, after a while, well, the brook dried up, and there was no rain in the land. But God has another test. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. For behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. Is that a coincidence? He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And just to remind yourself, I mean, this is in a drought. Water's a pretty... Pretty valuable commodity. Yeah, go get me a drink. And as she was going, she was going to do it. As she was, she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Oh, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she says, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, well, don't fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, then make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. It was called this, the the daily drama of the jug and the jar. God's been gracious to Elijah. His faith had grown. He's learned to daily depend upon God for, for his food. And now he goes to another place. And do you understand what's going on in the story? So Elijah encounters this widow who would, who would have been in a very vulnerable spot. No one's looking out for widows in that time period. They've been neglected. And she's got a son and she's got like one more meal and then they're going to eat it and, and who knows. She's faced the worst. And Elijah calls on her to have faith. He tells her not to be afraid. God will take care of you for this next season of your life. 
and she trusts him. She does exactly what Elijah says, and God's faithful. I want you to see, with Elijah and the woman and her son, God extends his mercy. God extends his mercy. So we had a woman on the brink of death, and God, God extends his mercy to her. In some ways, there's parallels, aren't there? There's parallels in what Elijah had just gone through. Because he had to learn, Elijah had to learn daily that God would provide. And now not just Elijah, but two others, three people are going to have to learn daily that God will provide. Elijah had to learn by himself to take God at his word. And now two others are going to have to learn how to take God at his word. You see, God used Elijah and prepared Elijah. And I would think, I would think he's preparing you and he's preparing your story and your pain and your suffering and your gifts and your wisdom and all the things that he's brought you through. He's preparing you to maybe stretch someone else's faith. God extends his mercy. There's just some remarkable things. This widow wouldn't have mattered to many, but God knows exactly where she is and what she needs. God extends his mercy in that as you do some geography, you recognize Zarephath in Sidon is actually at the heart of the worship of Baal. This is where Jezebel's from. Like This is the headquarters. This would seem like a very odd place for God to send his prophet. Why not just send them to the people who may want to listen, but why go into the headquarters of... This, this is a dangerous place. But Baal, who is the god of that region, was not delivering. And there would be a god who would provide for this widow. There would be a god who would provide for her son. What Baal could never do, God does. It's fascinating. One, one of the most interesting... So God extends his mercy. One of the most interesting things about this story is that Jesus, Jesus takes a lesson from it. It's one of the first sermons that Jesus preaches is in his hometown. It's in Luke chapter 4. You don't have to turn there. But when he's in Nazareth, he calls for a scroll. And he opens up the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61. And this is, what, this is what it says in Luke 4.18. This is the words of Isaiah that Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and sit at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and says, this day, that prophecy has been fulfilled. Good news has been preached to you today. Exactly what Isaiah had prophesied, promised. That's happened today. You would think everybody in Israel would be joyful, like the servants come, the Messiah's come. But so many, even in Israel, were, were going to not receive him. They were going to reject him. The religious insiders would push Jesus away. And so Jesus goes back to this story in 1 Kings 17. I mean, it just seems like a few verses, a random story in the Old Testament. But he goes back and he grabs this story. And, and this is what he says later on in Luke chapter 4. He gives a hint to the scope of his mission. He says, I tell you the truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. But Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, 
to a woman who is a widow. Jesus says, I come to announce good news. And he said, you, you might think it's limited in scope to just the people of Israel, but I have a much wider range than that. The story of Elijah was just a taste of someone much greater than Elijah that would come with good news, good news for those who feel on the outside. A not-so-subtle reminder that no one is outside the boundaries of God's grace. So you come to the end of your road. You sit around with regrets and frustrations. And Jesus came for, for you. And, and, and you're, you feel like an outsider to religion. Everybody else kind of knows the drill, knows what to do. And man, if everybody knew what you did, your past, Holly wouldn't want you around. You feel that way? Jesus would notice you. He would care about you. Those that are feeling hopeless, those that are feeling like they're a victim, Jesus would care for you. Those who felt some of the unique pain that holidays can bring, Jesus would notice you. Just like he noticed this widow. Elijah noticed the widow. And God directed his path. Are you fearful? Are you depressed? Have you lived a life where it's not so much you're the victim, you've actually driven people away. And now you're seeing it. Jesus would know you, notice you. He would care for you. He would come to redeem that situation. God has a radar for this woman. It seems like nobody's going to, no, nobody's going to care for her. God takes his prophet from a dried up creek bed and he moves the prophet to make sure this woman and her son have, has a meal. This is our God who loves, who extends his mercy. This is the love he has for you. Jesus came. Jesus came bearing a message, and that was that like God shows mercy, and that that mercy is a redeeming kind of mercy. It's not just this vague, like there's a being up there who may care about you. It's very, very specific. Jesus loved you and went to the cross, tasting every bit of sin that you've ever done, and every bit of pain that sin has caused in your life. God extends his mercy. He pays fully for our sin in the death of Jesus. And Jesus invites us to turn from everything else and place our trust in him. To live life receiving the mercy of God. Jesus didn't just die for a good cause. Jesus died for people. To reconcile people to the Father. And he rose from the dead and offers life and hope. And today, at the end of November, he is offering a new start. So I was thinking about this invitation that seems to be all throughout Scripture of God caring, God extending mercy. It's almost to me as if there's just this amazing banquet spread on the table is filled. And it's, it's as if God calls your name. He knows it. And he calls you by name and says... You come. You come to this table. I want you at this table. And you find yourself at the table of God's grace, and you wonder, what did I do to deserve to be here? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
I wonder if you have, have you ever put your faith in that call of Jesus? Have you ever trusted him? Have you ever come to that table? This is what I'd like to do. I'd like to, I'd like to pray for you if you've never known what it means to be accepted like that before a holy God because of the work of Jesus on the cross. I'd like to pray for you because I, I want you to know that. But I'd like for you to do something as well. You say, I have questions. I, I'm not sure. I'd love for you to talk with someone about it. Maybe the person that invited you or maybe a pastor or someone with a, a name badge on as you leave. But I, I don't want you to, to look at the table all spread and, and walk away, not having received what God has for you today. Can I ask you to bow your head? Oh, Lord, thank you for mercy. Thank you that you care about a widow and her son. And thank you that you care about us. Thank you for the way you even orchestrated circumstances for us to be present in this room today. For those of us who have things competing with you, I pray that you would break down the idols we would see the one true God. Correct our thinking, Lord. Lord, for those of us who are getting our faith stretched right now, I pray that we wouldn't quit or desert you in the middle of that, but we would lean into your grace and lean into your help. I pray even now that you would call people to yourself who are in desperate need of your grace, like we all are. You would open their eyes to see the truth. You'd take away their excuses. You give them the desire to walk with you, to believe, to talk with someone. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.